Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. Let's start off today's podcast with a definition, a definition of evangelical, which is the teaching of the gospel or the Christian religion. Now, this will be important today because I wanted to cover an article at religionandpolitics.org, which actually dates back to January 17th of 2017, by a lady by the name of Kristen Dumez. Now, Kristen Dumez is chair of the history department at Calvin College. She is an author of a new Gospel for Women book, uh, uh, Catherine Bushnell and the Challenge of Christian Feminism is the book. And she claimed back then in 2017 that she was working on a religious history of Hillary Rodden Clinton. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a religious history of Hillary. And now this book was never published, I guess, because there was just simply nothing to document. <laughs> but she did come out with another book after that, and that, that is a book by the name of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. This, this came out in 2020. Actually, it's been a fairly popular book. But here in 2017, she wrote this. She says, as Donald Trump prepares to take the oath of office, many white evangelicals will be celebrating. Yet the fact that family values conservatives continue to rally around Trump has bewildered many, including a number of evangelicals themselves. Trump, after all, is a man who boasted of his manhood on national television, who incited violence at his rallies and bragged of assaulting women. He is a man who spoke in the chapel of a Christian college in Iowa, my alma mater, no less, and claimed that he could, quote, stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose voters. Okay, let's stop here. <laughs> what violence did Donald Trump incite at his rallies? I, I mean, I even tried to look it up. I, I tried to, to, to Google it, and I, tried, I, I wanted to see what, what, what violence was she referring to. In fact, what I did find is that each Trump rally begins with a taped warning telling supporters, quote, if a protester starts demonstrating in the area around you, please do not touch or harm the protester. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know what she's talking about. But what does come to mind is this. Saul, or of course later named Paul of the Bible, positioned himself as, a, as an extreme hostile person to the growing believers in, in Jesus and, and the spread of the gospel message, even if that meant putting the followers of Jesus to death. He was in favor and he was there for that. So according to Kristen, <laughs> we are not supposed to be a fan of what Paul said and did after that then, right? She continues, she says, certainly his behavior did little to dissuade the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for him. A contingency that proved key to his victory. Now, you like how she uses the word white evangelicals here? So we're not only supposed to categorize ourselves according to our religious beliefs, we're supposed to categorize ourselves also by our race. So we can be Latino evangelicals or black Catholics or whatever, right? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. And what it does is it gives you a little bit of insight into 
into her mentality. And she's going to continue to use this, as, as you can see here. She says, yes, there were Supreme Court appointments and fears about religious freedom to consider and a long-standing alliance with the Republican Party dun, 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 to contend with. But even so, how could the self-professed moral majority embrace a candidate who seemed to flaunt his own cruelty? Okay, again I ask, how did Trump flaunt his own cruelty? She backs nothing up. She just simply throws that out there as if it's a fact. And 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 there's there's nothing there that shows that what she's saying has any credibility whatsoever. And and why would those that have a moral foundation that helps them navigate their lives support any other party than the one that aligns itself with them? I mean, seriously, why wouldn't they get behind the party and candidates that are going to nominate Supreme Court justices that believe in the Constitution? Why would they support a party or candidates that want to take away religious freedom? It makes no sense. But as you'll see, I think she makes little sense going forward. It says, the truth is, many evangelicals long ago replaced the suffering servant of Christ with an image that more closely resembles Donald Trump than many would care to admit. They've traded a faith that privileges humility and elevates the least of these for one that desires derides gentleness as the uh, province of wusses. Having replaced the Jesus of the gospel with an idol of machismo, it's no wonder many have come to think of Trump himself as the nation's savior. Okay, okay, let's stop again. <laughs> I don't know of a single Christian that thinks of Donald Trump as someone who is better than Christ. It makes, again, absolutely no sense. This is just a straw man argument. And to be honest with you, it's not even a good one. And by the way, you can be very humble and strong at the same time. It's entirely possible. Strength is just not an idol. So she continues by saying, indeed, white evangelicals support Trump, uh, support for Trump can be seen as the accumulation of a decades-long embrace of militant masculinity, a masculinity that has enshrined patriarchal authority, condoned a callous display of power at home and abroad, and functioned as a linchpin in the political and social worldview of conservative white evangelicals. In the end, many evangelicals did not vote for Trump despite their beliefs, but because of them. Okay, so, so, so white Christians favor, quote, militant masculinity, which she claims has enshrined, which means preserve in a form that, that ensures that it will protect, protect and, and be respected, patriarchal authority, which of course is a system controlled by men, callous power worldwide, and all of this is a part of a Christian conservative worldview. Okay, so if you're having a hard time following along here, let me, let me put it in, in, in other words. White Christians support a continuation of powerful men controlling everything. Everything that goes against powerful white men controlling everything is not Christian. That's, that's what she's saying here in as flowery a words as she can. 
Now, the roots of this ideology can be traced back, she says, to the 1970s, a decade in which evangelicals began to stake a new claim on politics and culture. As they mobilized around family values issues, defining masculinity and femininity as central to their task, James Dobson was one of the earliest and most influential proponents of this effort. The psychologist wrote to fame uh, with his 1970s book, Dare to Discipline, but it was five years later that he uh, began to articulate his gender ideology. Men and women differ. Let me repeat this. Men and women differ biochemically, uh, atomically, and emotionally. Hmm. To wit, men like to hunt and fish and hike in the wilderness. Women prefer to stay home and wait for them. More significantly, men derive self-esteem by being respected. Men feel worthy when they are loved. Women feel worthy when they are loved. So let me stop. What about the fact that men and women are different, both physically and oftentimes in ways they think and process emotions? And what about that is incorrect? I mean, we could do a whole podcast, and we, we actually might here soon, on on that, that whole last statement there that she was talking about, where men derive self-esteem by being respected, and women feel worthy when they're loved. But again, that's another podcast. She says, writing in 1980, Dobson blamed feminists for calling into question everything traditionally masculine, for tempering with the um, time-honored roles of protector and protected, and for uh, uh, denigrating masculine leadership as macho. He saw this as a crisis of gender, but also as a threat to national security. For the sake of the nation, a call to arms was needed, a reassertion of the Judeo-Christian concept of masculinity in the face of feminists, concerted attack on maleness. Okay, so let's just, for a second, fast forward 40 years from here, right? So we're, we're, we're talking about the 1970s here. You fast forward another 40, 50 years, and we see that James Dobson was proven correct. We, we have seen a culture war on men by feminists. And what have we gotten? Now we have a Supreme Court justice that can't even define her own gender. She says, to understand how challenging gender roles could imperil the nation, the politicization of uh, evangelical Christianity must be placed in the context of Cold War politics hmm. and against the backdrop of Vietnam War. Okay, Evangelicals staunchly opposed communism. Well, that's good. And their reasons for doing so were many. Communists were anti-American, anti-God, and they threatened God-given rights and, and the uh, integrity of the family. Okay, and they even still do today. <laughs> A strong military was necessary to wart off the communist peril, and strong men were essential to a strong military. Yeah, and what about that is incorrect? It's just, okay, she continues, but the the rising generation caused reason for concern. Young men sporting long hair and flowered shirts dodged the draft, shunning authority and 
shirking their duty to protect America from the threat of global communism. The Vietnam era would emerge as a pivotal moment in the relationship between American evangelicals and the U.S. military. In the 1940s and 50s, evangelicals had often looked um, askance at the military, which they sought as a source of moral corruption for young men. But as Anne Loveland uh, has argued, evangelicals who supported U.S. military action in Vietnam came to hold the military itself in high and often uncritical esteem. Okay, so what she's saying here, her point here is is just simply ridiculous. And, and, and I can only conclude that it is for the uneducated, really, and for those who know nothing about history. That's that's what she that, that that's who she's targeting here. To say that because Christians supported our troops during Vietnam, it shows that an error was made is just simply crazy talk. Peace through strength has been proven over and over during this time period. I mean President Ronald Reagan and and his defeat of the USSR and the Cold War is a great place to start if you want to. But all you have to do is look at Joe Biden today if you want something more current. And all of the problems that we are seeing because of the weakness of our leaders and our nation, I mean, come on. She continues and says, in this climate, gender was never a purely domestic issue. Evangelical opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment of the ERA in the 1970s and the early 80s bears this out. According to Donald Matthews and Jane DeHart, to evangelicals, the ERA challenged the very foundation of the conservative Christian worldview, the idea that gender was a sacred God-given certainty in an uncertain, fluctuating world. Hmm, kind of sounds like you could fast forward this argument to today and see where it's going, right? Opposition to the ERA quickly emerged as a key blank in their family values form platform. But the ERA was also an issue of national security. Evangelicals claimed the ERA would destroy women's femininity by forcing them to be like men, uh, com- uh, competitive and career-driven, sexually promiscuous, and most alarmingly, by forcing them to take up arms in military combat. The ERA then would not only masculinize women, but would also remove from men their obligations of provision and protection, rendering America's defenses vulnerable. Okay, so again, she gives an example that defeats her own point. I don't know if I've ever seen an article that that when when she goes on and and talks here, she actually gives examples and things that that go against what she's trying to point out and prove. It's it's just amazing. Just not a very bright bulb here. All of what she she claims Christians were worried about when it came to the feminist agenda has actually come true. I mean, we we even have men breaking women's athletic records and becoming women of the year. So, so yeah, this this just this is not not uh, aging well. Uh, she says evangelicals like Dobson responded with a clarion call to turn back the tide of uh, impending chaos by 
reasserting moral absolutes and reestablishing a Christian civilization, defining and defending district gender, distinct gender roles was at the heart of this effort, providing conservative evangelicals a clear identity against secularists, feminists, and other liberals. But by the end of the 1980s, their cause seemed to be coming undone. The fall of the Soviet Union and abrupt resolution to the Cold War had upended their presumed place in the world. Economic conditions were making it increasingly difficult for men to fulfill their roles as providers, and a growing acceptance of feminism in society at large meant that the evangelicals experience the new world order as more than a little disorderly. So what she's saying is that because a lot of people feel that they have to have two incomes and be a two-income household, uh, that's a good thing? I, I don't get it. I, identifying a renewed crisis of masculinity, she says, evangelicals responded by launching the wildly popular Promise Keepers movement in the 1990s. Promoted by Dobson, the move, which apparently seems to be the Antichrist here, uh, the movement quickly took hold. At its height in 1997, Promise Keepers drew more than 800,000 men to Washington, D.C. for its national rally. Reflecting the unsettled times, Promise Keepers called for a new Christian masculinity, an alternative both to the softer, modern version they found lacking and to the macho version they feared had become outmoded. Their solution, the archetype, of the tender warrior. Authors like Stephen Farr and Gordon Balway uh, and Stu Weber, all white evangelical men, there's that white evangelical again, um, pioneered this tender warrior motif. Significantly, all three looked at Vietnam for the source of masculine identity. In Point Man in 1990, Farr uh, compared a father's task of protecting his son's from feminization to that of a point man leading his troops through the dangers of Vietnam. In Healing the Masculine Soul in 1998, Dalby, the son of a naval officer, admitted to having neglected the image of the war hero as his blueprint for manhood by joining the Peace Corps and becoming a supporter of feminism, civil rights, and anti-war movement. Only later did he conclude that manhood requires the warrior. And in 1993's Tender Warrior, Weber, a former Green Beret, opened with a scene depicting the terrors of Vietnam and explaining how God designed men to be providers and protectors and warriors. In other words, that would echo through the movement. Weber insisted that God himself was unmistakably the warrior of both Testaments. Forget Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus was the ultimate man. Okay, again I ask here, what is not right about, ha about men having the courage to do what is right? What is not right about that? Today, 80%, yes, 80% of all black babies are born to unwed parents. Is this what Christians are supposed to encourage today? Well, according, according to her, yes. And she continues even. She says here, she says, but the Democratic President Bill Clinton 
sending the military on emasculating peacekeeping missions and the debates raging about women in combat and gays in the military, the crisis only deepened. Before long, a new slate of books on evangelical masculinity appeared, offering instructions on how to raise properly masculine sons in a feminized culture. Abandoning any lip service to tenderness, these books championed an unabashedly aggressive, testosterone-driven masculinity. Okay, so, okay, got it. I think I got it here. I think I finally got it. Testosterone, bad. Estrogen, good. Okay, so let's say it with me. Testosterone, bad. Estrogen, good. Okay, got it. She says, in Raising a Modern Day Knight, published in 1997 by Dobson's Focus on the Family. Again, there's that Antichrist again. Robert Lewis offered a detailed guide to help boys attain a biblically grounded manhood in a culture where men were being stripped of their maleness by a modern secular feminist culture. Turning to the Age of Knights, a time riff with powerful symbols of viral manhood, Lewis advised staging uh, elaborate manhood ceremonies involving expensive steak dinners and, and commemorated by symbols of great value, such as a Bible, a shotgun, or a plaque. <laughs> In 2001, Dobson himself joined the growing outcry against a war against boys in America. In his Bringing Up Boys, again, he criticized a small but noisy band of feminists who attacked the very essence of masculinity. He derided feminists and other social liberals who wanted to make boys more like girls and men more like women, feminized, emasculated, and wimpified. Bringing up boys found a respective audience, quickly selling more than a million copies. Also, in 2001, Douglas Wilson's Future Men insisted that boys must be raised to be warriors. Central to Wilson's definition of masculinity was the sense was the the concept of dominion. Like Adam, all men were created to exercise dominion over the earth. To this end, it was absolutely essential for boys to play with wooden swords and plastic guns. And young boys should obviously be trained in the real use of firearms. Yeah, yeah, or maybe we just don't teach them about firearms at all and let them, you know, experiment. I don't know. And young boys should obviously be trained in the use of real firearms, she says. Indeed, Wilson called for a theologically uh, a theology of fist fighting. <laughs> so anyway, she says perhaps the most influential evangelical book to appear in 2001 was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, amplifying theme uh, articulated by uh, earlier authors. Eldridge insisted that the difference between men and women resided at the level of the soul. And masculinity, according to Eldridge, was thoroughly mas- uh, materialistic or um, uh, militaristic. God created men to long for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. So let, let, me, let me take a moment here to just plug something, if I may. Okay. <laughs> um, to plug... Um, Andre Ivanov's Spartan Challenge and Flash Love. Now you can you can Google this and and you can you can read more about it. Uh, these are intensive programs that help boys understand 
what it takes to be a man. And if you want to know more, we actually did a three-part podcast. It was an entire interview uh, with Andre talking about his ministry. And you can find them in our archives at uncommonsensepodcast.com. You can go go listen to those, and I would highly recommend you do so. Uh, she says, women's role was a passive one. Women yearned to, to be fought for. They possessed something wild at heart, but it was feminine to the core, more seductive than fierce. But society offered confusing messages to men, according to Eldridge. Having spent the last 30 years redefining masculinity into something more sensitive, safe, manageable, and, well, feminine, it now berates men for not being men. A crisis of masculinity perv uh, pervaded both church and society because a warrior culture, a place for men to learn to fight like men, no longer existed. If we believe that men that, that that man is made in the image of God, Eldridge wrote, then we must remember that the Lord is the warrior. Aggression, aggression was the part of the masculine design. Men were hardwired for it, and attempts to pacify men only emasculated them. If you want to if you want a safer, quieter animal, there's an easy solution. Castrate him. Yes, a man is a dangerous thing, he wrote. But the very strength that made men dangerous is also making them heroes. So she says only a month after Wild at Heart debuted, terrorists struck the United States. Almost overnight, Elger's call for manly heroes developed into a deep, widespread cultural um, re renaissance. The moral cert uh, certitudes on the war on terror framed an evangelical president, George W. Bush, abruptly replaced the post-Cold War malaise. Once again, America needed strong, heroic men to defend the country at home and abroad. Okay, so again, she is making my point. Liberals want feminized men until they need strong men to defend them. Then suddenly, they're all in favor of masculine men. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of like, you know, liberals are all over the, uh, you know, the Second Amendment. And, and they, they hate guns and, and weapons until they need protection. <laughs> suddenly, they're all in favor of it. Uh, evangelicals, she says, many of whom had never strayed from the Cold War gender constructions, stood at the, at the ready to address these new conditions. When those two planes hit the Twin Towers on September 11th, what we suddenly needed here were masculine men. Uh, and and, and she, she continues to go on about this. It, it, again, making the point against her point. So it just... It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and, and she, But she does continue. She says, ominously, though, there is a fine line between merely speaking of brute force and enacting violence. Less than a month after the election, a 28-year-old white man shot, shot up a D.C. pizzeria with a military-style assault rifle. <laughs> okay. He, and, and again... You you can you can play this game, Kristen. We we can and we can play this game even. I can bring up many more individuals that have done terrible things in the name of liberalism. Just a week ago, a man shut up a New York City subway because of his leftist ideals. But that doesn't fit your narrative, does it? She says on the role of gender 
in in 2016 election, most observers have scrutinized Clinton's appeal, or lack thereof, but more revealing is Trump's testosterone-fueled masculinity. Nope. Courage and strength and character are what we we look for in our uh, in our men and in our leaders. She says, in retrospect, drawing attention to these per- perceived uh, negatives may have been a fatal error on the part of the Clinton campaign. For almost though, for among those who embrace this sort of militant masculinity, much character traits uh, paradoxically testify to the Trump's fitness for the job. Okay, but what happened to diversity? I thought that it took all types of people to move us forward. I guess except masculine men. And and what happened to not being judgmental and allowing others to learn from their mistakes? She says Trump appeared at a moment when evangelicals feel increasingly beleaguered, even persecuted. Issues related to gender, from the culture sea change on gay marriage to transgender bathroom laws and to the Hyde Amendment and and the uh, contraceptive mandate are at the center of their perceived victimization. The threat to terrorism looms large. American power isn't what it used to be, and nearly two-thirds of white evangelicals harbored fears that a once-powerful nation has become too soft and feminine. So, in Donald Trump, they found the leader they had been looking for, she concludes. And I would say, or maybe, just a leader among a sea of non-leaders. You see, militant masculinity is just a term that Kristen Dumas created to sell a lot of books and speeches. To use it as a hammer against Christianity is just ignorant. And you may agree with me on that. You may disagree with me on that. But I would love to have that conversation, really. And you can always do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.